Hello, this is Robert Crowther for ID the Future, a podcast of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. What would happen if Charles Darwin were to come back today? What would he think about the science of the 21st century? How might it change his views on evolution? Those are some of the intriguing questions posed by Nikhil John Romju's fascinating short novel, I, Charles Darwin. Over the next several weeks, ID the Future will be presenting an audio adaptation of Romju's book. Join Darwin as he re-explores the Galapagos Islands, visits his grave at Westminster Abbey, and learns about DNA and the other things he didn't know when he developed his theory. If you'd like to get the original book on which this audio production is based, visit icharlesdarwin.com. At that site, you can also find out how to purchase the entire audio production as an iTunes album or a CD. That's icharlesdarwin.com. In today's introductory episode, Darwin finds himself returned from the grave and begins to explore modern London, followed by a return trip to the Galapagos Islands, where he is surprised by what he learns. He lived in an age before antibiotics, before computers, and before the discovery of DNA. Yet Charles Darwin changed our science and culture forever. What would Darwin say if he returned to the Earth today? Find out in I, Charles Darwin, icharlesdarwin.com. Episode 1, London and the Galapagos This is the audio journal of Charles Darwin, the great 19th century naturalist known to history as the author of the theory of the natural origin and evolution of life. It's a record of his strange visit to Earth in our own day. This astonishing recording came into my hands from the two young children of a friend. The children are descendants in the fifth generation of the world-famous biologist, a relationship which bears on Mr. Darwin's serendipitous encounter with them, which his account will explain. The children say it was Darwin himself who placed this recording in their hands along the famous sandwalk on the grounds of Down House, his much-visited home in the village of Down, Kent, in England. I believe that the profound reactions Mr. Darwin recorded here, relating both to the impact of his idea on the last century and to the advent of the molecular biological revolution in our own day, makes this journal's release to the world especially valuable. In Darwin's recording, listeners will hear both personal and professional reflections on the vastly changed world revisited by the author of The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man. Some may discover a Darwin they did not know, a sensitive, inquiring spirit, whose thoughts and meditations are consonant with those expressed in his own Life and Letters, an autobiographical account which his son Francis edited and published in 1887, five years following Darwin's death. Ever an acute observer and a pursuer of truth wherever it might lead, Darwin has remained alert to contradictions and paradoxes in his famous theory. So listen now as we hear the new and sometimes surprising thoughts of Charles Darwin 
on the world of today. When I found myself on earth again, I was utterly perplexed. My bafflement was absolute. In my long life, I had given little thought to an afterlife of any kind, and certainly not to a terrestrial reincarnation, which I had not witnessed in all my years of observing the natural and human world. What attention had I paid to the realm of spirit, or to superstition, or to God? I believe my theory probably had made the notion of God obsolete for posterity, though I respected those who continued to believe, in particular my sweet wife Emma, and indeed all our children were baptized in England's church, so I was confounded to return to the earth anew. Then I recalled, first dimly, then more clearly, the directive that had been given me. We are placing you down there again, they had said for our own purposes. Not a little earth time has elapsed since your departure. Take another look. We value your gift for dogged observation. Do you perceive our touch of irony? They added, smiling. But one thing we forbid you. Observe only. Remain anonymous. Do not touch the lives of anyone living, in particular none of your descendants. We know human nature, don't we? Even in my perplexity, I had to smile a little, too. In referring to my gift for dogged observation, were they also reminding me of my great affection for my dogs? And maybe my boyish mortification, too, when my father told me dogs were all I cared about, along with shooting and rat-catching, and that I'd disgrace the family. Then they told me to be sure to record my observations on a strange device they had given me, called a digital recorder. Although it took me some time to get used to the device, I didn't really need to be urged to record my observations. Did they not remember my journal of researches, or, as you know it, the voyage of the Beagle? I found myself in an hotel room. There was a door that was all a mirror. Yes, it was me, my own face my long white beard, the dark suit of clothes I'd worn for my photographs, even the fur-lined slippers I wore over my shoes at Down House. Some sense of humor. I quickly kicked them off. Reaching inside my coat, I found a wallet with currency, pound notes with the face of a beautiful queen, and other currency with faces that I recognized, Americans, their first great scientist Franklin, and George Washington, and General Grant. I looked out of my window. Where was I? There was the Dome of St. Paul's, and in the distance, Westminster Abbey, where there had been some rumor I was to be buried. There were shiny carriages on the street below, no horses. But I will not go further into that. In your incomprehensible technological world, I am prepared for surprise and astonishment wherever I look, but it is your science that I want to see. Once outside, I immediately noticed people staring at me, at my long beard and old-fashioned clothes. So the first thing I did was suit myself into some of the strange but comfortable garments of your time. I left my black suit behind in the dressing booth. 
Then I found a barber shop and had my hair and beard severely trimmed. That was when I discovered a curious thing about my pound notes. Whatever notes I spent, I found new ones replaced straight away in my wallet. This was no natural process. They were having quite a jest with me in my reincarnation. I soon discovered more suspensions of the laws of nature in my favour. By wishing it alone, I could transport myself instantly to any place on earth which I knew or had learnt about, and I could will myself invisible. But I had to be absolutely certain, so I went on the instant to Westminster Abbey. Yes, I was buried there after all, my tomb quite elaborately marked, and just a few steps from the bones of Sir Isaac Newton. So here I am. Is my strange reincarnation or visitation or whatever it is unique? Are there others? Metaphysics is not my strength. I find myself, as you in the 21st century are wont to say, in a new normal. I seem to be absorbing quite readily your odd lingo, though I will try to avoid the excesses which already appear to me to be many. I am determined to do that which I know, to observe doggedly and with driving curiosity. I want to see how my idea advanced. And believing as I did that man in the future would be a far more perfect creature than in my time, I want to see just how my idea may have changed your world. I am determined now to pursue to the ends of the earth the inquiries flooding my mind. And I have a presentiment that the thunder and clatter I hear may be of a tonal dimension beyond the raging tempest of your street traffic, a thing of great moment. In all of this I marvel. I sought always the truth. I did not anticipate what I found in your world, and so in this advanced year of the tumultuous and riven times that have succeeded my own, I will give you the results of the examination I have made of my legacy. My idea, gripping the mind of the world, has changed the world in ways I find astounding. At the same time, my idea in its unfolding challenge has encountered an intellectual revolution in your time. And so I will tell you what I have learned about the origin and evolution of life and how it has changed the world for better or for worse. For is science not forever the land of objective truth? Has science legitimacy if it bindly assumes that a priori or asserts self-interest or if it fails openness or self-criticism? Thus I leave this record for all who question and especially for the questioning young to whom truth's future belongs. And I will leave this epistle to the generations of my grandchildren, two of whom I was privileged to meet after all, and whom I love across legend and time. Where to begin my strange transplantation to your time, a visitor from a distant era so heady with idea, pregnant with the future? I am reminded that my errand is earnest, my task a task of science, but perhaps more. The voyage of the HMS Beagle was the most important event of my life. To it I owe all the sharpening of my powers of observation, my best virtue in all due modesty. Indeed, when I returned from Captain Fitzroy's worldwide research odyssey, my father declared that the shape of my head was quite altered, and he was far from a phrenologist. 
From the Beagle came the first three of my books, but it was, as you know, my observations in the isolated Galapagos Islands off the west coast of South America that would greatly buttress my seminal idea. Here, as in Australia's island, existed species of life seemingly related to mainland species, but not found except in those isolated places. And I observed in the Galapagos, and soon in Australia, examples of marsupial mammals found nowhere else in the world. I discovered life's fascinating capacity, when isolated from larger pools of life, to generate diversity, plenitude, new species. Now, with my unlimited and apparently magical access to the work of my successors, I discovered on the Galapagos a curious turn of evolutionary events. Though I had not paid great attention to the species of finches I noted on our ship's stop there in 1835, textbooks of your time have claimed that my observations pointing to an evolution of finch beak structure were the central inspiration for my idea of natural selection. But did the finches of Galapagos really demonstrate the principle of one species evolving into another, fitter species? To my surprise, I learned that the evolutionary changes in the beaks of the Galapagos finches have proved reversible. When the islands experienced seasons of heavier rainfall, propagating more and smaller seed varieties for the several finch species to feed upon, the evolutionary trend in those wet years was reversed to favor individuals with more pointed beaks. Natural selection here was an oscillating phenomenon. While species had evidently diverged contingent on dry, wet weather cycles, they could apparently also merge, and indeed were doing just that. Speciation does not occur when exclusive mating behaviour, the true identifier of a separate species, proves flexible. I have noted too in accounts of the spotted owl controversy of the American Northwest that the wandering eye of this oddly newsworthy old forest species had led it to mate outside the old forest environment favouring its species, where it has been unable to locate a more agreeable spotted in-species mate. I am struck by these interesting, if relatively trivial, findings. If in your time such contradictions have become observable in my special theory limited to microchange, what may be said about my great general theory about evolution across the great divisions of life? I must ask, why do your textbooks ignore the empirical contradictory evidence made manifest in the intensively measured observations of the merging and oscillating species of the Galapagos finches? I'm finding my strange sojourn among you interesting, but vexing. I am cheered by the assiduousness I encounter, but perplexed by your selectivity in the weighing of new evidence, a practice among you that baffles me. I hold to my theory, but in this first fascinating foray into my renewed scientific life, I feel as if I have set out anew on the beagle. What questions I have! I can hardly wait to learn what has evolved in every particular and general sense in this new age of the spread and application worldwide of the science of life. I, Charles Darwin is based on the novella by Nicol John Romju. Audio adaptation by John West and Jens Jorgensen. Narration by Robert Blythe and Andres Williams. Music by Pond5.com. Copyright 2013 by Nicol John Romju and Discovery Institute. All rights reserved.
If you'd like to get the original book on which this audio production is based, visit icharlesdarwin.com. At that site, you can also find how to purchase the entire audio production as an iTunes album or a CD. That's icharlesdarwin.com. Be sure to listen for next week's episode, The Fossils and the Tree, where Darwin explores what we've learned about the fossil record in the 150-plus years since he announced his theory. For ID the Future, this is Robert Crowther. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2013. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.